Heavenly Father, how glorious if what we sing aloud is actually true. That if we truly can be satisfied in you in the midst of hardship and pain and suffering, in the midst of persecution, in those times when it seems hopeless, we don't want to just sing these songs, Father. We want to live in accordance with them. We don't want to just read passages from your word or hear it preached. We, we want you to speak to us. We might hear you and out of our great love for you, desire to submit, to be this people that's been set apart. We ask, Father, that you'd be gracious with us this morning. We, we need your grace in order to worship you rightly. Help us to hear you speak. Help us to hear your son declare that he is the light of the world. And by your grace and mercy, Lord, draw us into that light. Do that work this morning, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated, good morning. There's much work for us when we gather. As a, as a church, there's work for us. Um, I know at times it seems routine because we, we do it every Sunday, and many of us gather on Wednesday as well. But in order for us to worship God, we, we, we come here, I have to put in time, if I'm going to be faithful to the Word of God and, and honor Christ, to study the Word that I might have it right when it's preached to you. You have to do the work of coming in here and being of sober mind, and humble of heart, and able to actually hear what God has to say. We're going to see from the passage today that Jesus was speaking truth, and no one wanted to hear it. They didn't like what he had to say, and nothing's changed. When we proclaim the gospel truth, most of us don't want to hear it. So if, if by God's grace I do my part, and by God's grace you do your part, we're still not there yet, because the Holy Spirit has to come And he has to take my words from this sinful tongue, and he has to apply it to your sinful ears, and he has to do a great work. And and that's what we want to do when we gather. We don't want to become religious. We don't want to exercise in a Sunday morning routine. We want to hear God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, be changed by him. You say, well, how will we be changed? Every day into his image, more and more and more like Christ as we see Christ. <clears throat> that's why you're here, right? I pray so. I pray, I pray you're here for that reason, to truly worship Him. And so I pray that, that you will hear, I pray that I will be able to preach, and I pray the Holy Spirit would bless us in a mighty way this morning, and maybe reveal something from this text that we've never seen before. If you have your Bible, please open up to John chapter 8. We are in the Gospel of John. We've been here now for several weeks, and we will be here for several weeks more. <clears throat> In John chapter 8, we're we're actually going to, we ended in John chapter 7, verse 52, and verses 53 to John 8, 11, it's the story of the woman that's caught in adultery. And and most of you in your Bibles, if you have in your Bible, some it's left out, if you have in your Bible, it's in parenthetic form, so there are parentheses or brackets at the beginning, at the end. It's a story that's out of place. And it's out of place because it was not in John's testimony. It wasn't in the gospel, not in the earlier manuscripts anyway. 
And so this story of the woman caught in adultery and then Jesus has that great verse where he says, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It's one of the better known stories, uh, even outside of the church, but it wasn't in the gospel of John. It was very likely a story that was handed down by oral tradition, and, and most believe that it's probably something that happened in the life of Christ. But because John didn't write it, it's not part of his original gospel, um, we're, we're not going to address it. In fact, it's, it was never seen in any of the earlier transcripts. It started to arrive in some of the later transcripts, and it was either in part or in whole, and different translations throughout the centuries have moved it around. We have it here in John 7. There's another place they put it in John 7. Some put it in John chapter 21. Some put it in Luke 21. Some put it in Luke 24. Why? Because no one, no one that we know, we don't know who wrote it. And so um, the, earliest, the earliest account of a church father actually commenting on this wasn't until the 12th century, and his comments were, this was not in the original text. Okay, so that, that being said, it wasn't part of John's gospel. It's not written in, in John's language. And so what we're going to do is if you look at verse 52, 52 and verse 12 and John 8 go together. And so we're going to slide this bracketed passage out. There's so much you can read on it, and you can go and read your commentaries. It's not, it's, there's nothing in it that is unbiblical at all. And so you can study it and look at it. But we're, we want to make sure that we're holding to the actual gospel of John. And so we're going to stay the course in that, and we're going to go from 752 to chapter 8, verse 12. All right? Okay. We left off, and Jesus is in the tabernacle. It's the feast of... It's the, he's in the temple. It's the feast of tabernacles. And it was the last day, and if you remember from last week, he declared himself to be the Messiah, the Savior that would bring living water. And so he declares himself to be the Savior of the world. Look at verse 37 in John 7. John 7, 37, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so we've had this constant testimony of the Lord, first up in Galilee and now back in Jerusalem, saying, I am the Savior of the world. I am the Messiah. Last week, he was using a metaphor of water to make his point. This week, he uses a metaphor of light, and you'll see why, because he's bringing up the Old Testament, he's bringing it into the Feast of Tabernacles to show them that the gospel that he's preaching is true. And so this morning, I, w- I want to look at his declaration to be the light of the world. Most of you have heard that term before, that phrase that Jesus attaches to himself. I want to look at how the people respond to it, and it's not good. The response is not favorable, and by God's grace, ours will be much better We will look at his incredible persistence. Our Lord, I was so amazed. He keeps coming at them with love. He refuses to be okay with them not being saved. And then I want us to be persistent in wanting to be saved. I want us to be persistent in wanting those who we know to be saved. So let's do that this morning. Let's examine this text. And let's look at how one, the light testifies, and that's Christ, how he testifies to himself. Number two, I want to look at how the darkness resists it, just pulls away, draws back. And number three, how the sun is lifted up. Okay, so how the light testifies, how the darkness resists, and how the result of that leads to the sun being lifted up. Let's look at verses 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 20 in John chapter 8. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles. How the light testifies. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to flesh. I judge no one, verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bear witness. I am the one who bears witness. I'm sorry. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about myself. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know, neither, you, know, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so we're at the end of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's continuing to declare himself to be the Messiah. Last week we saw that it was through this illustration of water. And this week he says, I am the light of the world. And they would have known from not only their Old Testament, but from the feast itself, that he's making this bold declaration that he is the Christ. In fact, throughout the Old Testament we see the, the use of light being paralleled with the Christ coming. Isaiah was probably most succinct in his declaration of this. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, Isaiah writes this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And so he's taking the Old Testament, he's drawing it into this declaration that he is the light of the world. And then in the midst of this, this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, there were several parts to it, one of which on several days or all days, there's great debate on that, in the evenings, they would actually light up one of the courtyards, and there's debate on that too, they would light these large candelabras. I mean, I'm talking about the size of like a lamppost. And the, the priest would actually get a ladder and they would light it up, and there would be four parts. Some say there were, there were multiple candelabras, and they would light these in this courtyard. And evidently, in the evening, it was so brilliant and so bright that it could be seen from every courtyard throughout Jerusalem and throughout the surrounding area. And of course, this, was, this light was was illuminated at that time to have the people remember how God led their fathers in the desert through the darkness as what? As a fiery pillar at night, right? So it's drawing it back to God's saving grace and God leading his people. In fact, it was the one time when literally Jerusalem became that light upon a hill for all the world to see. And so Jesus has this backdrop of the Old Testament and the Feast of Tabernacles, and here he says to the masses, remember, they're still all listening, he says, I am the light of the world, and he makes this declaration to his Messiahship. Now, this shouldn't surprise you, we've already seen this attachment to Jesus being the light twice in the gospel. We saw it in chapter 1 in the prologue when the apostle said in verse 4 of John 1, in him who was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Christ himself declared himself to be the light. If you remember when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said to Nicodemus, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, referring to himself. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were what? Their works were evil. Now, usually when we think of light, we think of this, or we think of the sun. 
but he's not talking about it in this context. Light here is personal and it is powerful. I want you to think the person of Jesus Christ and I want you to think of the power of the Almighty God because what he's saying is here is that this light has the ability to cast out the darkness. And when he's talking about darkness, it's not just this general evil, this general sickness that that plagues the earth. He's talking about real sin and real death and real darkness that Christ is saying, as the light, I have the ability. It's an audacious statement. He's saying to the people, I am the light and I can overcome the darkness. What darkness? I can overcome Satan. I can overcome the demons. I can overcome your own sin. I can overcome the grave and death and hell. Christ is making that declaration. He is saying this. Jesus is saying, I am the light of truth and wisdom that will overcome the darkness of all human lies and arrogance. He is saying, I am the light of holiness and righteousness that will once and for all overcome the darkness of sin and impurity. He says, I am the light of joy and life, eternal life that can overcome pain and it can overcome death and overcome hell. For all who what? Look at verse 12. For all who he says, follow me. Jesus says, you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so he draws right back to the pillar in the desert. What did they do? They followed the pillar of fire by night, wherever it went. They went with God in the darkness. They followed him. If he stayed, they stayed. If he went, they went. And Christ is saying, if you follow me, and here's the great imperative for us, Christ says, I am the light of the world, and you can come into that light, and you can have it, but you must what? You must follow me. You too can overcome the lies and the arrogance. You too can overcome the impurity and the sin. You too can overcome the pain and the misery of death and the association of death with an eternal damnation if what? If we follow Christ. If we follow Christ. Is it any wonder they were so offended by the statement? I mean, it's such a bold declaration that Christ is saying, I I have and will have complete victory over Satan, sin, death, darkness, hell, forever. You too can if you follow me, Jesus says. He said, you've got to trust in me to save you. And he says, not only will you not walk in the darkness, not only will you not be forced to walk in the darkness by your sin, but look at verse 12. He says, you will have, that literally in the Greek, that means you'll possess You will have, you will possess the light of life. What does that mean? How can we possess it? Does that mean we get to possess Christ? In a way, yes, you have Christ. I think better, the light will possess you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and dwell within you. You'll have true spiritual inner peace in Christ. This is the life that we're called to as believers. We're called out of the darkness into the light. We're called out of being so selfish and so mindful of our needs and our wants and our desires out of that darkness and into the light of Christ, which is other-centered and God-centered. And, and Jesus is saying right here, you, you can have that, that light in you, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, walking with you. He's giving you the desire to know the word that you might submit to it, giving you the desire to actually be holy as we've been called to be holy as he is holy. Jesus is saying, you believe in me, and this is what he's saying. Everything will change. You believe in me and everything's supposed to change. We're not talking about just some kind of a, a, a verbal commitment that leads to a mediocre commitment. 
or change in your life. He's talking about total change. How you approach work will change in Christ if the light of Christ dwells in you. How you love your spouse will change in Christ. How you rear your children in Christ will change. You will be a different parent in Jesus. How you spend your money will change. How you spend your leisure time will change. How you deal with the very crisis and pain that many of you are going through right now, it will change in the light of Christ. How you think and how you speak and how you feel about the living God will change. Your eternity will change in Christ. It will not be damnation. It will not be condemnation. It will be eternity with Christ in heaven. I mean, these are radical statements. They're so radical, they hate what he's saying. Look, Look at verse 13. So the Pharisee said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. Notice they didn't hear what he said. He said, I am the light of the world. And they said, you can't say that. They didn't respond to what he said. They responded to the fact that he alone, supposedly in their minds, was saying it. And so they hang their entire hat on this technical error according to the law. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. They know their law well when they need to know it, don't they? But how they miss it entirely when the gospel comes. Deuteronomy 19.15, Moses said the facts of a case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So they say, you can't say it by yourself. You can't claim to be the Christ alone. Look at our Lord's answer in verse 14. Jesus answered them, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. This is such an amazing thing. I want you to notice this throughout this entire dialogue. They're trying to entrap him, and he's trying to save him. They're trying to get him, and he keeps trying to rescue them. So what does he do? He, this is a rabbit trail. And he actually goes down the rabbit trail for just a little bit to redirect it right back to the gospel. And he keeps doing that. He goes, I'll entertain that, but let's go back to the gospel. I'll, I'll, I'll hear that thought. Let's go back to the gospel. Look at what he says here. He's saying... Even if I don't have another witness, which he does, he says, even if I don't, my testimony is true. Why? Because I was there. I was in heaven. I came down from heaven. My father sent me, and I'm here testifying to it. Just because he doesn't have another witness doesn't nullify his testimony. Some of you have been witnesses to things by yourself. Does that mean that the, the, the witness is nullified? Of course not. Of course not. He is saying to them, you have no firsthand knowledge of these things, because he's talking about spiritual things. He's talking about heavenly things, and they're missing it. Light in and of itself, even light. Light doesn't try to prove itself. Light casts out the darkness. It is self-authenticating, right? And Christ is saying, I don't need to, but he does for them. It's an amazing thing that he does. Look at what he, look at what he says in verse 15. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Christ came to authenticate the gospel itself, to bring that to us. And he did, as the light, he cast out darkness. He cast out, in their presence, he cast out demons. He cast out disease. And he's going to cast out death for all who repent and believe. But he says to them in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. And it, that's not flesh as in sinful flesh. He's saying, all you, you judge me like a man. All you can see me is a man. Because they don't know the spiritual things. And they, they miss it entirely. They have no concept of, of their, the heavenly home from which he came. They don't understand that God the Father did send him. They don't even understand the mission he's on. They're sitting here trying to accuse him unjustly, trying to seek his own life, and yet he keeps saying to them, I'm trying to save you. 
the latter part of verse 15 is highly controversial, but I think it's quite simple when he says, I didn't, I didn't come to judge anyone, not this time, right? This time he came, his mission was what? It was not judgment, it was salvation. That's why he came the first time. He, in fact, we saw this in John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but what? In order that the world might be saved through him. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, even, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. He says, all right, I'll, I'll play by your rules. I'll jump into Deuteronomy 19. Look at verse 17 here. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So once again, what is he doing? He says, all right, I don't need another witness, but I'll play the game. I have not violated Deuteronomy 19. I'll submit to the law as well, which Christ did perfectly, by the way. And he says, I'll bring another witness. Who does he call this witness stand? He calls the Father. He calls the Father. And what, is he, what he's saying is this. <clears throat> Everything that I'm saying, the Father has already said. Everything that I'm declaring that is true, the Father declares it to be true also. And so he appeals to Deuteronomy 19 by calling himself and the Father on the witness stand. Verse 18 again, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, if you remember, a few weeks ago in John chapter 5, the same dialogue, same complaint taking place. They were saying, you can't testify on your own. And Jesus said, I'm not testifying alone. I'm testifying with the Father. And the Father testified to Christ in what way? We know this, right? He, he testified to Christ through the Scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies and the laws and the sacrifices. So they have the entire Old Testament, their sacred Scriptures, pointing directly to Jesus Christ. And the Father testified to Christ through His miracles and the works. And so Christ says, you have the testimony of my Father in your book and through the works that I have done. Look at their response in verse 19. It's so grievous. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Where is your father? And Jesus answered rightly, you, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Sometimes the translation doesn't convey the meaning. This one is a case in point. They're not asking a legitimate question, where is your father? In the Greek, this is a caustic remark. They're mocking him. They're saying, Where's your father? They know he's talking about God the Father, and they know that he can't bring God the Father down to testify on a stand. And so they're essentially saying, bring him before us so we can question him too. Ah, but you can't. Therefore, you're in violation of Deuteronomy 19. Therefore, away with you. It's such a grievous response. Part of me gets angry when I read it, and part of my heart breaks when I read it. God is... God is always on the witness stand. I mean, is he not? We know from Romans chapter 1 that God's testimony is in all of creation. He testifies. We know from the word of God that we have that he testifies over and over again in the Old and New Testament to himself, to his Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Testimony. And these men, this crowd, they had they had Jesus Christ right in front of them. Now, remember who this person is. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
Christ, the one that they were talking to, the one that they were mocking, the clearest revelation of God's saving grace ever offered to man is Christ, and he's right in front of them. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 said long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so he's saying to these men, creation testifies to me. The word of God testifies to me. And the Father testifies to me. And I'm standing right in front of you. And they can't hear it. They cannot hear it. The human heart will always fall upon a technicality or a proof text or something we want God to do to make us believe in the face of clear truth, Christ saying, I am the light of the world. We want some proof of some kind. The number of times that I had my students say, well, if God would just show me X, if God would just do this in my family, if he would would make my father a better father or my mother a better mother, if he could do these things for me, then I would believe. These men are doing the same thing. We want want something other than the word of God, and we want something other than a, a, a crucified, risen Savior. But Jesus made it clear In Matthew chapter 12, there will be no other sign than the sign of Jonah. None. You know what the sign of Jonah is, right? Jesus said it. Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In a matter of months. Remember, in this dialogue, Jesus is six months away from the Passover celebration and his death. In a matter of months these men would see, this crowd would see Jesus Christ arrested, crucified, buried, and rise from the dead. They had the consummate of revelation to them. They had the scriptures. They had creation. They had John the Baptist. They had our Lord's teaching in the temple. They had all of his miracles. And they're going to have, in a matter of months, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. And then they would see at Pentecost, in a matter of days after that, they would see the Holy Spirit come down and thousands come to believe. And then they would see Jesus' disciples teach and do great miracles just like Christ. And yet they still did not believe. Apart from being born again, as Christ said so clearly to Nicodemus, no one will. No one will. You cannot see and you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again. And so what do they do? What is their response to the the proclamation of the gospel and Jesus Christ saying, I am the light of the world, come follow me? What is their response? It is the sinful response. It is to embrace the darkness. It is to move into the darkness. Look at the second point here, the darkness that is resisted. Verses 21 through 27. Verse 21, so he said to them again, Jesus is now talking, I am going away. And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. That that is such a terrifying verse. Verse 22, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning, 
I have much to say about you and, and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus, he reiterates what he had already taught in chapter 7. He says, I'm going to go away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. But I want you to notice the difference here in this verse. He says, I'm going away, you cannot come. Why? Because you will die in your sin. You'll die in your sin. Now, he's talking to Israelites. He's talking to the Pharisees, who were the most religious of the Israelites. These were the, these were the children of God. These were the children of promise. These were the people who had the law and they had the prophets. These were the people who thought they were worshiping the one true living God in their temple. And here Jesus is saying to them, Jesus, the supposed light of the world, what is he saying to them? He's saying, you're no different than the Gentiles. You're sinners too. In fact, you're dead in your sins too. And, and you need me to make you alive. He's saying to them that they will die in their sins. And they understood that. They did. They got it. That, he's talking about the full penalty, penalty of God's wrath being poured out on a sinner that has not repented and believed and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They're understanding that. The full penalty of God's wrath if they do not repent and believe. They know that Jesus is saying, you'll be shut out of heaven. Now, in their minds, they could not be shut out of heaven because they were children of Abraham. Who shut out of heaven? The pagans are, not the Israelites. But instead of hearing what they should have heard, first time Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, now saying, you will die in your sins, that, that should have terrified them. Look at what they catch on to. They catch on to Jesus saying, I, with the emphasis on I, am going away. And they respond to him with another mocking question. Look at verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? They don't even hear him say, you're going to die in your sins. They immediately start to mock him again. Sinful ears hear only what sinful ears want to hear. We are no different, my beloved. I imagine there are some things that are being said from this passage that you are letting pass right by you. Don't. Grab on to them. Suicide for the Jews was one of the worst things someone could do. Self-murder. And they believed that, that hell had a special place reserved for those who committed suicide. So when, when they're saying to Jesus, what is he going to do, kill himself? It is a more vicious remark than when they said back in chapter 7, is he going to go to the Greeks? Or in verse 19, where is your father? They're saying to him, essentially, you're a suicidal psychopath. Christ is saying to them, I'm going to ascend into heaven and I want to take you with me. And they say to him, you're a suicidal psychopath. You are crazy. Had they heard correctly, they would have heard Jesus say to them, you will die in your sins. And if you do, if they did, with all the revelation, with all creation and all the prophecy and the law and Christ himself and the resurrection from the dead, if you die with all of this revelation, with God incarnate speaking to you, you will go to the deepest part of hell. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you hear that plea? That is a plea. Christ is saying, I'm from heaven. I'm without sin. You were born here. You were born of your father, Adam. You want to hang on to Abraham, you go all the way back to Adam. He's saying to them, you you have the law and you have the prophets, but you still don't understand that you are in desperate need of my saving grace. He's talking to the Jews and how desperate they needed, like every other man, woman, and child ever born needs to be saved by Jesus Christ. I still hear dialogue about how are people in the Old Testament saved? By Jesus Christ. What's the difference? They look forward to his coming. We look back at when he came, and we will look forward to when he comes again in glory. But every person who makes their way into the presence of God for eternity is saved by Christ. They put their hope in him before he had come. We put our hope in the fact that he has come and he'll come again. And So Jesus is pleading with them here. You notice he says three times, you're going to die in your sins, you're going to die in your sins, you're going to die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. Why did he do that? What was their big struggle? Was their big, big struggle that he was the Messiah or was their big struggle the fact that they were sinners, they didn't want to have to be saved? I'm going to argue it was the latter. And so what does he press upon their hearts? These self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees and Israelites and Jews, these people that we don't need you. So Christ tells him three times, you will die in your sins, you will die in your sins, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. And verse 24 is such a powerful verse. It is pure gospel. He is saying to them, you don't have to end that way. Your end doesn't have to be destruction. I imagine that there's a cry and a plea in his voice saying, you don't have to die eternal death. You know that God is holy. He's he's saying, see that I am his son. See that I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And instead of fleeing into the darkness because I am the light, and they did flee, instead of doing that, Instead of chastising me and rebuking me and hating me and instead of arresting me and instead of trying to kill me, come to me. Christ is saying, come into the light. Because in the light, there is life. In the light of Christ, there's forgiveness for sins. In the light of Christ, there's complete restoration before the Father. In the light of Jesus Christ, there's life now and all eternity. It's not just this future promise, my beloved. In the light of Christ, there's real life, real joy right now. And so Christ is calling them to it. It's a warning mixed with this call to believe. It is, it's, pure, it's pure gospel. He reveals their sins, and then he opens the door, and he says, don't die there. Here I am. We are. We must be better at this. We must be better at sharing the gospel in this way. Jesus shared the gospel perfectly. We live in a time and place when most people don't even know the word sin. And as soon as you teach them the word sin, they will think that they're not a sinner. And for those who do think that they are sinners, they will think that they sin, but they're not so bad they deserve to go to hell. And that's probably 98% of the population. So what must we tell them? We must say the same thing again and again and again. You will die in your sins unless you know Christ. It's that simple, saints. 
And if you need to tell them three, four, or five times, do so before you show them Christ. We love to talk about the grace, and we love to talk about the love. We say, take this, take this. Well, why am I taking it? Because you're a sinner. Oh, really? Really? Jesus knows how resistant the human heart is to the truth of the gospel, the full gospel. And that's why he says to them, you will die in your sins, you will die in your sins, you will die in your sins, unless you believe that I, I love this, that I am he, that I'm the one, that I can save you. Every man, woman, and child that rejects that truth will die in their sins. They will perish eternally. And every man, woman, and child that says, I am a sinner, and they put their faith in Christ, will live forever. Look at their response. As I read through this, I so want them to respond rightly. I keep waiting. Now they'll turn. And it's not like I haven't read it before. But I'm thinking, maybe this time. Look at verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to him, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Again, not a great translation in English. This is the fourth caustic remark. When they say, who are you? Better rendered, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? They're saying... You're talking to Israelites. We know God. We're already good to go. We're saved. We're children of the promise, children of the covenant. You're talking to the wrong people. Go to the Gentiles. Go to other people. We're okay. Christ responds plainly, just what I have been telling you from the very beginning. Christ has not changed his message. He's been saying from the very beginning, plainly, speaking publicly, I am he, I am he, I'm the one. He says that I'm the one that came down from heaven. I'm the one that was sent by my father. I'm the one that is saying only what my father tells me to say and doing only what my father wants me to do. I'm the one. Some of his first public words, most of you know this, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message The very beginning of his ministry, now we're three years into it, and he's in Jerusalem with the temple, Feast of Tabernacles, six months from his persecution, and they're saying, who are you? You said, you've got to be kidding me. From the very beginning, and we can actually go all the way back to the very beginning, I mean the very beginning in Genesis, same gospel message going forth. Verse 26, there's a flicker here of judgment, and it's it's just a flicker, and I want you to get it, but it is a terrifying verse also. If you're reading this with a discerning eye, look at verse 26. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. Beginning of verse 26, I have much to say about you and I have much to judge. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm not here for judgment now, but the day will come when I will identify you by name and I will have much to say about your life and I will judge you. Jesus is saying, I will be that judge. The one that you reject right now, I will be that judge. I will be the one that testifies to you, you who mock me, you who reject my father, you who reject the gospel, you who reject the blood that I will shed on Calvary. He says, I will be the one that will judge you. He says, I will come against you in the presence of my father and I will open up the books, those books from Revelation that we know. 
and he's saying every word that you've ever uttered, every thought that you've ever had, every sinful act, every good thing you did not do, I will then speak. And Christ says, and then I will judge. And in that day, he's saying, you'll be silent. There'll be no response on that day. And he gives him this, this glimpse. But then I, it's amazing. Look at the latter part of verse 26. He says, but, but for now, right? But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And that is the gospel. And so he drops the, the theme of judgment. Why? He wants them to believe. He wants them to believe. He wants to draw them back into the gospel of grace. He's there to save. He's there to save. And so he connects this God they supposedly worship, the author of truth, with his entire life. And he's saying, whatever I have said, my father has told me to say. Whatever I have done, I've done in perfect accord with my father's will. My entire life has been pleasing to my father. Every prophecy, every miracle... Every word, every work approved by God, including him calling them sinners and himself the Savior, which they hated most. So again and again, we see Christ redirecting their snide, caustic, hateful remarks back to the gospel, that they might turn, that they might repent, that they might believe. He wants them to believe. So we've seen by God's grace, the light testified We've seen the darkness that resists it, and, and it led to the sun being lifted up. The greatest mistake that mankind ever made, which was killing God on the cross, provided the greatest hope for mankind, and that's being saved through the cross. Let's look at the last point, verses 28 through 30. The sun is lifted up. The light testifies that darkness resists, and as a result of that, the sun is lifted up. So Jesus said to them, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Verse 30, such a glorious verse in the midst of all this rejection. And He was saying, as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Many believed in him. So what does Jesus do? Their hearts are so hard. He speaks truth, they rebuke him. He speaks truth, they mock him. So he says, all right, I'm going to speak some prophecy. I'm going to put something out there in your future, and then when it happens, maybe you'll believe. And so he talks about him being lifted up. When the Son of Man is lifted up, when their final act of hatred which takes place upon the cross, when they actually take his body and they nail him to the cross, when they've done exactly what they've wanted to do all along, kill this man, Jesus is saying, when that happens, then, then you will know that I'm speaking the truth, that I, in fact, I am he. You'll know. You'll know then. He's saying, you'll know then that the Father did send me, and you'll know that I've done nothing apart from his will that I've spoken only what he wanted me to say and I did only what he wanted me to do and that all those miracles were by his hand, saying, then you'll know. Now, some of these people that will know this in these, in these upcoming months, we know that these, these are people who are saved by God's grace. These are people at Pentecost where the Holy Spirit was poured out 
And they actually saw Christ for who he said he was all along from the very beginning. And they repent and they believe. And the church is born. Some of these people here, they're listening because it says in verse 30, some believe, some are those people, the early church, brothers and sisters, whom you one day will meet. But others who are hearing this will hear God speak to them in another language. And he's, Jesus is talking to them in the language of the gospel again and again that they might believe and be saved. But he's saying to them, you will know, there will come a time when you will know that this language that God now speaks is not one of reconciliation or a plea in grace, it is judgment. Many of them would experience it in a matter of years following our Lord's crucifixion when the Romans came and they destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and they destroyed the temple and they, and they destroy the city and they cast the Jews throughout the empire. He's saying some of you will know that then. There'll be a temporal punishment for the killing of the Messiah, but infinitely more grievous. He's saying to them, many of you will know what I was talking about in verse 26. You will die in your sins and you will come before me and I will be your judge and I will have many things to say. On that great day of the Lord, that great day, and on that day, he's saying, then it'll be too late. There'll be no hope on that day. If you reject Christ now, there is no hope on that day that you see him. He's saying, then you will know, verse 29, he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's saying that on that day, you're going to know that my whole life, my whole life was lived out for the Father, everything I did. The Father that they said they worshiped, the God they said they believed in, Christ says, then you'll know. You'll realize every step, every word, every healing, every miracle was done by the Father, because of the Father, and the power of the Father to reveal the Father. He says, every moment of every day, his entire life, he did that which was pleasing to his father. You know, Jesus is the only man that was able to say that. That, that Jesus Christ, I, 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 I cannot not ponder this and be in total awe, knowing my sin and knowing how wretched my thoughts are every day. That Jesus Christ, his entire life, he did not have one thought that was not pleasing to God the Father. Not one. He didn't have a single conversation that God, the God the Father didn't say, that's my boy. Not one relationship that Jesus had was not perfect. And he, he was the perfect man, and he lived the perfect life, which makes Calvary so grievous and so glorious because what did we do? Mankind murdered the perfect man. Mankind murdered the Son of God who did everything that was pleasing to the Father. And it's so grievous on the one hand and it's so glorious on the other because on the other hand, what? That means that there's hope for us. Why? Because he was sinless. And because he was sinless, he could go to the cross and he could die for our sins. But if he had his own sins to pay for, then he couldn't, he couldn't pay anybody else's. He had to pay for his own. But his whole life, was perfectly pleasing to the Father, and therefore he's able to do what no one else is able to, and we can say no one would do, that he could take our sins and our punishment and the hell that we rightly deserve upon himself. He could do that. Even on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered as he suffered for our sins. 
for all who would repent and believe, he was doing the will of the Father perfectly, perfectly. But on the cross, there was a, there was a time, there was a moment, maybe it was just a moment, I don't know, when Jesus Christ bore this agony alone in his body, when he took our eternity in him, our hell in him, and he, he trod in that winepress alone, right? He, he drank that full cup, the entire cup of God's wrath that is to be poured out upon those who will be saved. He drank it all the way down to the last drop. He paid perfectly the penalty for our guilt, and he did that without the Father. He did that alone. That was the Father's will. That's why Jesus was so grieved in the garden. Most of us think that he was grieved because he was going to be crucified, a horrible death, no doubt, but he was grieved because he knew that in that crucifixion, in that moment on the cross, in that time, somehow that that relationship between the Father and the Son, there was going to be a breach of some kind because Christ had to bear the sin alone. That's why he asked if there's any other way for this cup to pass. And the Father says, no. And he says, thy will be done. He does this out of his love for God the Father. And I think what's most extraordinary to me is he does does this out of his love for you. Out of his love for you, he bears this penalty in his flesh. Our Lord paid close attention to what the Father said and what the Father wanted. In fact, we can say that Jesus paid perfect attention. He'd have been the perfect student, right, in class, perfect student. He hears everything perfectly. He spent his entire life and his death submitting to God out of his love for the Father. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've been called out of the darkness and into the light, you too, we collectively, are called to hear God and strive to submit to God. And that means, my beloved, not taking this Christian walk so lightly at times, certainly not handling his word so lightly at times. I mentioned this two weeks ago, and I I think it's true. So many professing Christians, at least in the West, the only time they open their Bibles when they come to church and the pastor says, open up your Bible to John chapter 8. That's taking it lightly. Daily application, daily submission, knowing God. I had a passage read from Hebrews chapter 2. It struck me this week. The author says, we must, listen, he's talking to the church, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. Much closer attention then he says, so how, how, will, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by, by those who heard, and God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. <coughs> Excuse me. We must not fall into this trap. Those who were listening to Jesus were not careful They were not paying attention to hearing the word of God. For if they had been, Christ would not have been someone they wanted to kill. We must not handle the word of God with such disregard. You know what I'm talking about. A little reading here, a little devotion there, a little Bible study, but no real study, no serious study. 
We live in a time and a place in, a, in an historical moment, my beloved, when we have the Word of God accessible to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have resources. We have commentaries. We have languages. We have people that can sit down and teach you the Bible. You get a new job and you want to be a diligent employee, you'll want to know what your, employee wants you to, your employer wants you to do. You say, what do you want me to do? How am I supposed to work? When am I supposed to be here? How long do I? Tell me. I mean, you'll strive to be a good employee. We get it in the workplace. You want to be a godly husband, men? You'll want to know your wife. You want to know her needs and meet her needs and love her and cherish her and nurture her. We know that role biblically. Children, you even know it. You say, if you want to be a godly son or a godly daughter, and you want to know how you can minister to your parents, how you can submit to them. We get it in all these areas. We get it at home. We get it at work. Why don't we get it with God? I'm asking this. If we want to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, and that means pressing hard into the Lord, that means not walking through this this life of faith haphazardly, little church, little prayer, little scripture, but to truly know him. And listen, saints, to truly know his will, not generally. You say, well, I know his will. He's holy. I'm a sinner. God, Christ is the Savior. I'm to repent and believe and follow him. I mean knowing how to follow him. I mean knowing the particulars of your faith. Being able to open up your Bible and say, I know what that means. And I'm striving by the Holy Spirit to do that. Now, you won't, like Christ, you won't on this side be perfect in that. But what a horrible excuse. The Christians use saying, well, I can't be perfect, therefore I just will continue to sin. And you can hear the Apostle Paul saying, well, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Paul said, may it never be, God forbid. The life of the believer is one of holiness. It's one of knowing this. I don't think there's a person in this room that says, I am pressing hard that I might know him. I'm pressing hard. I'm learning, I'm listening, I'm growing. I'm loving more, I'm submitting more. That's the trajectory, my beloved. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. There were many there who were listening closely. They heard and they believed. And several of the commentators say, this is, Jesus is talking about a belief here. Because you have the testimony of creation, you have the testimony of scripture, you have his teachings, and you have the miracles, and they're culminating in in these points, these pinnacle points. And many actually believed. They believed that, that he was going to be lifted up in some capacity, and they didn't know how yet, but they would in a matter of months that in him being lifted up, they'd be lifted up too. They would, they would somehow be with him. They'd be set free from this darkness, from the ignorance, and from the lies, and from the impurity, to be set free from it. They would have the light of life in the Savior. They would have it. If you profess to have that, is your life in line with that profession? Does it look like that? The same testimony 
from the very beginning to the very end, that same testimony keeps going out century after century. It's an amazing thought that churches have gathered for centuries, and, and many have heard from this exact passage, and that by God's grace, we're in that wonderful lineage of God's people. So I'll ask you this morning, and I'll close. Will you hear Jesus say to you, I am the light of the world, follow me, and you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Will you hear that this morning? Not just hear it and say, yes, I I know, I've heard this, but really hear it and say, I want to follow him, and I don't want to walk in the darkness. How many of you are tired of walking in the darkness? I want to walk in the light. I want to be in the light. Will you put your faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ? This is a question I ask when I baptize people, and follow him all of your days. Because this teaching is in a present tense every day, every moment of every day. I will follow him. I will follow him. I will follow him when I don't want to follow him. I will follow him when I do want to follow him. I will follow him when I'm suffering, and I will follow him when I'm filled with joy. Will you recognize, if you haven't already, That in order to know God, you've got to know Christ. If you want to know God, your creator, you have to know Jesus Christ. He said to them, you don't know my father and you don't know me. You can't know the father unless you know Jesus. Whatever idea you have about God, whatever faith you profess, if it is absent Jesus Christ, it is a false, false faith and a false God. Will you believe the testimony of our Lord? Will you believe the Bible? Will you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Will you believe the hardest thing he said this morning? That unless you believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, you will die in your sins. Will you believe that? Will you look to the one who was lifted up on the cross so that you wouldn't have to be lifted up on a cross? so that you could come into the presence of God instead and be with him? Or will you allow your foolish heart to lead you astray? Will you, like the Jews in our Lord's day, come up with every excuse imaginable not to believe? They were creative. Our flesh is creative in rejecting Christ. Your creativity will do you no good on the day of judgment. Will you die in your sins and remain in the darkness and reject Christ? I pray not. I pray not for you. I pray this morning that you will hear Jesus Christ declare himself to be the light of the world and and call you to follow him and that you will flee the darkness and that you will come into his glorious light into his saving grace this morning, which you can do because the door is still open. He says to you, as he said to them 2,000 years ago, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he. So that door is still wide open. That's glorious news for us this morning. And it's glorious news for all those in our mission field. That we can leave here tonight and we can go to them tomorrow and say, hey, the door is still open. 
You don't have to die in your sin. You know, you can make your testimony that short. You will die in your sins. But if you believe in Christ, you don't have to die that way. What a simple way to present the gospel. We know this. One day, all of creation will come before Christ. All of creation. And therefore, really, there's only one question. How will you know him on that day? How will you, not the person next to you, it's funny when I ask questions, people go, they look around and go, yeah, what about you? What about you? How will you know him on that day? It'll either be as your Savior and your King, the one that you know loves your soul and gave his life to save you, or will be as a judge. One of those three. Hear Christ this morning say he is the light of this world. Repent of your sins that you might not perish in them. Follow him. If you don't know how, ask me afterwards. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we read this passage, we see how deceived the heart that has not been redeemed is. These men stood in the presence of your Son. They had revelation in full, and yet they rejected him. We know, Father, that if any of us believe, it's it's not because we're smarter than they or more holy. We know it's because you came to us and you made us alive. And you, you gave us eyes to see that your Son is indeed the light of the world. For this, Father, we thank you and we praise you. We praise you for bringing us out of the darkness. We praise you for sending Christ to redeem wretched sinners like us. We praise you, Lord, for giving us the light that we might have the Holy Spirit now. Father, be gracious with our mouths that we might open them and declare this testimony to the world that is dark and getting darker. We as a a people here at Camden might be a brilliant light. that We might light that fire and that candelabra here in San Jose. We pray, Holy Spirit, for your blessings upon our church, upon my brothers and sisters, that they would not take lightly this calling, that we would understand what, the, what you meant in Hebrews chapter 1, that we ought to pay closer attention. We ought to desire to hear you speak to us specifically in your word, and then by grace live as you've taught us. Lord, forgive us for our complacency on this. Rekindle, I pray, that fire to know you and to know your Son and to commune daily and walk daily in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Our flesh will not do this. It will only turn to the darkness. By your grace, we can. So we ask that you would do that for your glory. For it is your glory we desire most. We want your name to be magnified in our homes, in our workplace, in this church, in this community. We want your son's name, Jesus Christ, to be used by people not as a curse word, but in knowing him as Savior. Do that work, we pray, for your glory in Christ's name.